All right, we turn again to the second letter of Paul to Timothy and chapter 1 and the familiar words in verse 12. I know whom I have believed. I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him for that day. He makes three statements in these words. He's not speaking here as an apostle with a capital A, with the gift of infallibility that the twelve had, uh, that went to the jots and the tittles of their writings. That dimension is always present, and, and that's true. And that's why the climactic aspect of our worship is to gather around the word of God. What Paul says, the Holy Spirit says what Paul says, the Lord Jesus, who sent him and commissioned him, also said. But here, the apostle is speaking as Mr. Christian. Mr. Sinner saved by grace. And what is written here can be said, can be affirmed, and borne witness to by the weakest, newest lamb in the flock of Christ. And uh, we must ask God for faith and trust and courage to say it aloud. We sing it, don't we? We're going to sing it at the end of the service tonight. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. We know it so well. Well, I hope you'll be able to sing it with renewed assurance, thanking God for the reality of these words from your heart. So what's the first thing that the Apostle says here? Well, Paul says, I know the God I believe in. I know whom I have believed. The Christian knows God. Well, no, um, every, every Christian knows about God. Every person in Aberystwyth knows about God because God shows us himself every day in his creation the, the sunset sunsets are just extraordinary the evening stars the starlings as they come to roost in their hundreds under the pier and the heavens speak to us and the heavens say isn't the creator glorious look at his Godhead he made this universe it didn't come to us by a lucky chance. It didn't come to us by a big bang. We are surrounded by more than beauty. We are surrounded by glory and awe and design in everything. Consistency. Day after day. We know this, and yet many of our Neighbors are clamping down on that knowledge in their determination not to do things God's way. And we also know this, that the designer of the universe designed us, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we have a conscience. And when, our, when we do something mean and unpleasant and lustful and proud, then it rebukes us and when we do something self-sacrificing and costly deeds of self-denial it says good on you good on you well done go for it 
God has also made himself known to us by his servants, the prophets, by Moses, Abraham, Samuel, Elijah, Isaiah, the writing prophets. God, you see, sent hundreds of these prophets from the schools of the prophets, which were an institution, to get the word of God through Israel. And he sent them to the people to preach to them about what was God like and what God required of them, each one, day by day. And their response to uh, the preaching that they heard from the sons of the prophets was what we read in the book of Psalms, the 150 Psalms. They're breathtaking, aren't they? There's no book like them for their analysis and their awareness of the subtlety of the human heart and our personal struggles and our need for repentance and our need to appreciate the wonder of the mercy of God and what he's done for us. So the people heard the prophets. Uh, They shouted, oh, a prophet has come, gathered together now. And the men and the women left their tasks and the children came and they sat down and the prophets preached to them. And the people didn't say fairy stories. They didn't say that's his opinion. They didn't say in good days we prefer the prophets of Baal and their more earthy approach to life. They didn't say I've been very lucky. And people say that, and they say it modestly, and I understand what they're saying, but they're wrong to say it like that. The Old Testament Christian said, surely goodness and mercy have followed me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. They responded by thrilling songs of praise, Psalm 103, Psalm 100, and repentance, Psalm 51, Psalm 22. Doxology to the living God. That's how they responded to the God who spoke to them through the prophets. And then in the fullness of time, we know God because he sent his son, Jesus Christ. The proof for the existence of God is the existence in this world of the Lord Jesus Christ. His sermons, his parables. The signs he performed, he turned water into wine. He healed every sick person who came to him. He delivered young and old from the devices of the devil. He spoke to the winds and waves, and there was peace. He transformed people. He made them wise and sensible and patient and loving He prayed for his enemies when they crucified him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He came not to command huge gatherings, 5,000 men, to fall before him and put their noses in the dust. But he came to serve them. Serve them by teaching them, by answering their questions, by telling them what was wrong and how it could be put right. He came to seek for us and that's why he's brought us here tonight again he's found us and uh, he died for us he died the lamb of God that we might be forgiven he died to make us good and every virtue we possess and every victory won and every thought of holiness are his all the best things about me and about you are because of Jesus in our lives and his grace and his peace. 
I'm saying mankind knows God through creation and through conscience. And they know God through the special revelation that he's also given us of himself in the Bible. And so we have come to know God personally. I'm saying that everyone in Aberystwyth knows about God. They can study God. They can study the catechisms. They come to this church. They will sooner or later learn the catechism definition of who God is. God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And I'll say that so often, you will all pick it up, even if you've never read the Shorter Catechism, but just listening to what I say. Or you will be able to say what God is, that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and these three are one God. And that's who God is, and that's absolutely correct and absolutely essential. But the devils also acknowledge God in those words. And tremble at what they say. James Alexander of Princeton, one of the great uh, Alexanders there um, in the 19th century. Such a holy man. And he was dying. And his wife was with him, uh, sitting at his bedside. And she gave him this, this verse to comfort him. She didn't quote it exactly. She said to him, I know in whom I have believed. And he gently corrected her, he says. I know whom I have believed. He wouldn't allow two letters of a preposition to come between his soul and his Lord. I know whom I have believed, Paul says. So, he knew all about God, That in him and through him and to him are all things. To God be glory forever and ever. He knew that. But all that knowledge that he had, that he'd accumulated from Gamaliel and from going to the synagogues and reading the scriptures. Essential and orthodox though it is. There were many years in the life of Paul, like there were many years in your life when you knew about God. But you didn't know God for yourself. There were years when Paul was zealous for God. And he evangelized and argued and wished that all men were just like himself with this knowledge of Jehovah. And then he heard one day a cult had sprung up And it was centered on a carpenter's son. And this carpenter's son then was claiming to be the the Christ, the Messiah. And that the Sanhedrin, his revered supreme court, had tried him and found him guilty of blasphemy and had handed him over to the Romans to be crucified and they'd killed him. And Paul was enraged now that there were people who were spreading malicious heresies claiming that Jesus was actually the Son of God. And so he set up all the machinery of the Inquisition. And off he went and arrested them and pulled them 
before courts and charged them and found them guilty and was only satisfied when they were stoned to death. And all this he did knowing about God, but never knowing God. And then on the road to Damascus, when he was traveling there in order to annihilate the spread of Christianity to Syria, to Damascus, and wipe out any Christians there who might be infiltrating the, the synagogue in Damascus and telling people the Messiah has come and he is Jesus, there was a confrontation on the road with God himself, the living God, that he did not know Jesus Christ met with him. This God stopped him in his tracks. This God turned his life upside down so that the first time in his life he fell before God and cried to him, Who are you, Lord? He was acknowledging he didn't know this God that had met with him, a God of such glory and power. He needed to be introduced to him, like I need to introduce my God and Savior to every one of you. And it was Jesus who did the introduction. It was Jesus who came to him there on the Damascus road and said to him, Hello, Saul. Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And then he knew for the first time that Jesus was God. So let us say then from what I've given you a broad um, survey of how you come to know God. There are three ways of being able to say uh, that you know God like Paul could say to Timothy here. Firstly, you, you know God only through his Son. It's then that you gain a personal knowledge of God and you know all you need to know if you know Jesus Christ. If you know the Son, then you know the Father also. And that's why we are told in this uh, verse rather vaguely that he knows the one he believes. And he doesn't tell us if he's referring to the Father or to the Son here. And it's not important. It's immaterial whether it's the Father or the Son. Because if you know the Son, you know the Father. And if you know the Father, you know his Son, Jesus Christ. So the glory that Paul saw on the road to Damascus was the glory of the Lord Jesus lying on the ground. The glory as bright as the midday sun in its zenith in the Middle East pouring down upon him, blinding him. He knew Jesus Christ was the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. He knew that. So I'm saying to you, you know God in, in the Jesus Christ of the Bible. Our Jesus Christ, who meets with his people when they gather in his name, a personal knowledge of him. So if you want to know God, you must find out about Jesus Christ. You must know him in Jesus Christ. Secondly, you know God in repentance. Paul fell before God. 
Paul was a broken man when he came to know the Lord, this proud, self-righteous man who knew everything, poured contempt on his pride. From that moment on, he realized, he realized how bad he'd been, what a mess he'd made of his life, what a major mistake he had made. His values and his ideas and his beliefs and his practices were all wrong. He had guarded men's coats so they could, with more freedom, pick up jagged rocks, not smooth pebbles, from a beach and hurl them a few yards away from Stephen into his ribcage and into his head and into his stomach and on his limbs. And when concussed, he fell to the ground. They kept thudding rocks into him until he was dead. And, and Paul was thrilled that that was done. There was no knowledge of God in Paul. And on the Damascus Road, he came to know Jesus Christ as the Son of God. And he came to know himself. Because it's only in the knowledge of God you know who you are. You are a creature of God. You're made in God's image. You're in God's world. You're made by God and you're made for God. And the pilgrimage and the journey of this life takes us one day to God himself. There is no new knowledge of God without new knowledge also of your own heart that it is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked you come to know that you are a sinner when you know God is light and holy and good when the thieving publican tax collector was there in the Synagogue would come under enormous conviction of how wretched he was. You know, he couldn't look up. He looked down into the ground and then he beat his breast and he said, God be merciful to me, the sinner. He knew God in repentance. And he was showing then that he knew himself. Knew not a single devil who can define the catechism answers of who God is, not a single devil repents. Not a single devil asks God for mercy. But every, every Christian, every Christian prays Psalm 51 from his heart. Uh, everyone who says, I know whom I believe, he's a repentant person. That's the second way. We know God in Jesus Christ. We know God by repenting of our sins. And thirdly, we know God as we believe in him. That's what he says here. I know whom I have believed. He's talking about a new trust now that he has in Jesus Christ. And there are men and they will say, well, I don't know God. And you say, all men, everybody in Aberystwyth knows God, you say. But you've never put your trust in God, have you? How can you know a God who is alienated from you, who is estranged from you? You've kept him at a distance throughout your life. And so there's no reason for you to be in any other state than a stranger to God's character and grace and personality. 
you have to deal with your distrust. You have to say to God the words to this effect, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, Lord, that um, I've kept you out of my life for so long. You have to say something like that. If you want to know God, that's the next step for you. You're saying, uh, I'm going to trust you from now on. If, if you say to me in, in the Bible that you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, I'm, I'm going to believe you. If you said on the cross, it is finished, all the work of my salvation, my redemption, suffering for my sin, was completed and finished by Jesus Christ, I'm going to trust you that I make no contribution to my redemption because Jesus Christ finished, paid every penny, cleared the slate, wiped it absolutely clean. You trust from now on in the redeeming love of God for a sinner like you. I say that's the way you you know God. You know God in Jesus Christ. You know God with a repentant heart. And you know God by trusting in him, by believing in him. That's the first point I wanted to make. The second point I wanted to make is Paul entrusts himself to God for the great day. You see that in verse 12? He has entrusted to God for that day something. I know he's not specific in telling us what it is, so let's look at it carefully. Literally, it means God was able to guard Paul's deposit for that day. Paul had banked the lot with God. He had put everything in God's safe deposit box. What, what is this thing? And there is a, a grammatical ambiguity here that concerns the question of what actually was Paul's deposit. Is the deposit something that God had entrusted to Paul that God would keep? He'd entrusted it, but he was keeping it. Or was it something that Paul had entrusted to God, whom God would keep? Both are true. Both are grammatically possible. And so the meanings are debated, and each has his supporters. I see that 14 scholars and commentators favor the interpretation that it is what God entrusted to Paul that God would keep. And 16 favor the view that it is what God has entrusted, what Paul has entrusted to God. Okay, the score is 16-14. And uh, they are orthodox men on both sides. And I have judged that it would be just to to labor things and bring the study into the pulpit and uh, weary you with a Christian academic uh, dispute to go into a lengthy explanation. You'd find that tedious. 
I'm using, uh, amongst the commentators I use, there's one by a student who was with me many years ago, George Knight. His commentary, it's just magnificent uh, on the pastoral epistles. And uh, I go along with him with a second view then, that what Paul is referring to is what he is interested to God. But it's not a crucial difference. No doctrines hung on the one interpretation and not on the other. It, it, it supports them both. So, Paul is talking about his deposit. What does he mean by that? The Greek word means uh, a deposit committed to someone's trust. Okay, you're going away on holiday for two weeks and you want your house plants to be watered. And so you deposit your front door key with some neighbors whom you can trust absolutely. They will water your plants according to your instructions. Some twice a week, others once a week. The cacti, not at all. And you'd be very upset if you returned and found all the plants half dead because they'd not been watered at all or they'd been soaked Every day with water, your neighbors hadn't looked after what you had deposited in their care. They'd not guarded what was deposited with them. Now, in the days of Timothy, valuables were kept in temples. They were the banks. They were the safe deposits of the ancient world. And it was a very sacred duty, a high duty, the temple prided itself that it had safes where treasure entrusted to it were kept. Right. The question then is, what does every Christian deposit with God? Firstly, we deposit our hearts with God. You know, uh, uh, that lovely verse in the book of Proverbs where our Heavenly Father says, My son, give me your heart. When I was in seminary, there were students who'd been to a notable uh, uh, college, and they had uh, American sweatshirts. And uh, the sweatshirt had a design here of outstretched hands and a heart on it, like that. And the text that was written under that sweatshirt was, my son, give me your heart. I would have bought one if it had been sold in the seminary bookshop, but it wasn't, and I admired those who wore it. You've got something valuable, intensely valuable. Say you have a jewel the size of a large walnut, without a blemish, and worth millions of pounds. You're not going to put it in your jewellery box because you know a burglar who'll come in when you're in church, that's the first thing he'll go for. Your jewellery box. Uh, you're not going to put it under the bed in a sock. You're going to find somewhere absolutely safe for that jewel to be kept. Your life is more valuable than all the jewels in the world. What will it profit you if you have all the jewels in the world and you lose your own soul? Now, 
the heart in the scripture, it doesn't refer to our emotions, but it refers to our thinking and our values and our enthusiasms and our moral code and our decisions. They all proceed from the heart. And I tell you that John Murray called the heart then the dispositional complex. That was at the center of your life. Um, out of it come all the issues of life. It's the real you. Your heart. Your personality. The issue facing you then tonight is this question. Who, who's in charge of your heart? There's a famous atheist poem called Invicta, which was written in the Victorian period by the poet William Ernest Henley, and it concludes, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. It's human arrogance. So what does he expect when he says that, when he affirms that so positively? Does he expect applause? Does he expect us to say hooray? When death came in his black robe and his scythe, and he came into the room where Henley was, could Henley say to death, no, not today, go away, I'm the master of my fate, I'm the captain of my soul, And would death tremble and go pink with embarrassment and say, I'm sorry, and walk away and let Henley live for another five years or ten years or whatever? No way. Death would mock him. And his arrogant, vain claims to be the captain of his soul. Come along, William. I'm the master of your fate. And today... It's appointed for you to die. We're not the captain of our souls. There's an admiral who's above the captain. And that admiral determines, yes, the length of our days and when we are going to die, as die we will. And no platitudes on our part are going to prevent that. But that's the vanity of everyone who says, I'm the captain of my fate. And I'm the master of my soul. Ego reigns. In the unbeliever, God is not the king of your life. Jesus is not your Lord. Self is Lord. You've given your life to serving self. But the Christian is someone who's come to to know the Lord. And he is consciously and he is personally given to God everything. Take myself and I will be ever, only, all. For thee. That's the Christian. So we deposit our hearts with God. Secondly, we deposit our lives with God. Uh, I'm just thinking of your futures now. Some of you are young and you have the most important decisions to think of in, in the years to come. One day you're going to choose a spouse. And you're going to be asked if you will marry someone or if they will marry you. You have to choose a career. One day you're going to become a parent and you're going to nurture children and you're going to tell them how they should live. 
And some of them may have learning difficulties. You're going to be dealing with retirement and old age, caring for aged parents and an aged spouse and facing death. And these are not realities. These are not fancies. These are the realities of our lives. How are you going to live? Who's going to look after you in the future? Who's going to tell you, be this sort of man, this sort of grown-up, this sort of wife, this sort of father, this sort of workman and boss, and instruct you and explain explicitly to you what the good life is and who is your neighbor. The Christian is a person who has surrendered all his life all his future, all the years that lie ahead, he has given that life to Almighty God. He sings the hymn that we sang tonight, God holds the key of all unknown, and I am glad. If other hands should hold the key, or if he trusted it to me, I might be sad. I cannot read his future plans, but this I know. I have the smiling of his face, and all the refuge of his grace while here below. Enough. This covers all my needs. And so I rest. For what I cannot, he can see. And in his care, I saved shall be forever blessed. And that's what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who has given his life. He's given his soul to God. He's given his life to God. It's the deposit that he's committed to God. And thirdly, we deposit our gospel with God. Sometimes we are so concerned about the gospel in Europe today, we're told that the most irreligious continent in the whole world is Europe. And statistics then are quoted to show us how very few people profess to believe in the gospel. And then we think, oh dear, I'm so weak in my faith and in my testimony. What does the future hold in a hundred years' time? Will there be a testimony to Jesus Christ in Aberystwyth that is vibrant and living, that is not intimidated by the hostility of the growing religion of atheism? Will the gospel survive the spread of secularism? Well, of course it will. The gospel is in God's hands. And the gospel is the power of God, the dunamis, the dynamite of God unto salvation to all who believe. Jesus says to his disciples, you're the light of the world. There's no other light but the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of Jesus Christ in your light. Let your light shine before men. The people dwelling in darkness will see a great light. There's an emptiness in the hearts of men and women that all secular pleasures can never fill. And there's this beauty of the living Christ and the dying Christ and the rising Christ and the Christ who gives us the Bible and the Christ who comes in the lives of people who know him, and, uh, and we're touched by them and affected by him. There's an emptiness in men's hearts until they see Christ in people. And this Christ says, I'll build my church. 
The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will tremble. As the church advances towards them, let alone secularism in Wales, in a hundred years' time, we know what our duty is. We are to sow and we are to water. Every day, sow and water. Every day, God gives the increase. And that's our confidence about the future, that God is going to give the future. And no power in heaven or hell or under the earth, above the earth, nothing will prevent the increase of the gospel. The gospel is safe in the hands of God, so we commit to God our souls, our lives, and our gospel. We deposit it all with him. And lastly, he says, God is able to guard all that we've entrusted to him. That's the final great affirmation he makes, that he can guard. It's all safe. The deposit that we've left with him is absolutely safe. Uh, Paul is convinced about it. He's totally and completely assured. He is telling us, once God has saved us, then we are always saved. That's what he's saying. I don't believe that once men have made a decision that they're always saved because Jesus warns us about that misconception he tells us in the parable of the sower about some people who make an enthusiastic, joyful response to the word of God when they hear it. But uh, when trials and troubles come and weeds grow in their lives, then they give up. Jesus warns us about that. That those who are carnally confident in saying, I shall stand, must take heed lest they fall, he says. Not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who do the will and endure and keep doing the will of God. Who keep following a savior. They, they alone, who endure to the end. But... uh, Oh, well, those, those the Father gave to Jesus before the foundation of the world, they're saved. Those who Jesus suffered and bled and died for on the cross, they're saved. Those who have received new hearts and their old hearts have been taken away, They are saved. Those for whom Jesus prays now, whispers our names to his heavenly Father and says they need help and strength. They're going through difficult times. They will be safe forevermore. God is able to keep everything that we've committed unto him against that day. We are convinced of it. Once you've given your heart to Jesus Christ, you can never be lost You will continue with him as your Lord forever. God is wonderfully patient towards you. There's no pardoning God that can compare to him. Things you do, stuff you get involved in, sub-Christian actions that you fall into. Think of David. When, When David sinned as terribly 
as King David did with Bathsheba, murder and adultery. God didn't say, right, to hell with you, my boy. He didn't say that. You, you must know how God deals with us. That those whom he foreknew, he has foreordained. That uh, we will be with him forever. Those whom he calls, he regenerates, he justifies, he adopts, he joins to his son, he glorifies them. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Not one of them will fall into hell. Now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. It is an impossibility. It is a theological impossibility. It is a moral impossibility. God will not allow the devil to chortle with delight that one of those for whom Jesus died, one of those God gave to Jesus for good keeping and safety, that he went to hell? Not the weakest of the lambs of the flock will go to hell, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ, our Lord, he will guard that which we have committed unto him for that day. If we perish, we shall lose heaven. That's all. If we perish, God will lose his reputation. He has made promises, and he has failed to keep those promises. What a God is this, then? A God who says with words, what he cannot do, with deeds. This is what the Lord says. This is the will of him that sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. You know how God works. That God didn't give us saving grace because he knew we'd be really good boys and girls that we'd really be trustworthy and obedient and responsible disciples. We'd never warm our hands by a fire in a courtyard and deny with cursing that we ever knew Jesus Christ. We wouldn't be like that. It wasn't like that, was it? It wasn't. He knew we were depraved. That there was nothing in us that had been unaffected by sin, that there wasn't an atom somewhere which when God saw, he clapped his hands with delight because it was as holy as he was. It was without sin as Michael. Or Gabriel, the archangels were. It was like his son. Sin had pervaded us and touched every part of us. God knew from the very beginning there was nothing we were, nothing we could achieve. Nothing we could attain, nothing that we could do that could pass the muster of his eyes upon us, searching us. 
Every imagination of the thoughts of our hearts was only evil continually. God didn't break his promise to save King David. He took him to heaven. But he broke David's heart. And for the rest of his life he was a a much quieter and humbler man than he had been. Much we do grieves and quenches the Holy Spirit and makes us less useful in the kingdom of God than we should be. I guess in heaven tonight there are millions and millions of men and women much closer to Jesus Christ on the throne than King David. And that is exactly what David wants. He is content to be there. Content with the judgment of God upon him. And he sees much nearer the throne, Uriah the Hittite, that his lust killed. I wonder, do they sing there in heaven and Bathsheba with them? I wonder, do their voices, as we find in the book of Revelation, that this world ends in singing in a great choir of praise, And to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. I wonder do they sing there in heaven the hymn that we are about to sing. David and Uriah the Hittite and Bathsheba and sinners who were saved by grace. And they sing, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known or why Unworthy, Christ in love, redeemed me for his own. But I know whom I've believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Their song is all of the greatness of the love and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And that will be their theme through endless ages. And we are taught to sing that theme in our short pilgrimage to that glory. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that we know something of this. We know you. We know you as our Father, our loving Saviour our indwelling spirit, that we know you. We know your goodness to us that's brought us here and kept us and our great debt to you and our great thankfulness to you. We know something of that. Oh, that we were a hundred times more conscious of the wonder of salvation through grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. And we pray, loving God, then that we will be assured that what we've committed to you you keep, you keep it safe until the great day that lies before us. Please hear and answer our prayers, which we bring in Jesus' name. Amen.